I want to ask a question. Have you ever seen two worlds collide? Have you ever seen two worlds collide? Not like physically, like, like two planets. That's not what I'm talking about. Maybe you have seen that. It's crazy. I want to talk to you after the service, hear what that's like. Have you seen two cultures like come together, right? Two, two sets of ideas, two forces clash. Listen, sometimes it's beautiful, right? Like you can think about maybe you've been to another country and you've worked through and suffered through a language barrier and, and struggled to communicate. You've used hand motions and whatever else it may be. And, and that's been a challenge. But you, you work through all of that just to ultimately be able to point at something and laugh because it's funny, because what's funny might transcend that language barrier. Or you marvel at something wonderful or cool because language barriers can't stop that stuff. The, the collision of two worlds, of yours and that of another culture, was something beautiful in that moment. Or maybe sometimes, though, it's not so beautiful. It's chaos. I'm thinking here now, the collision of two uh, maybe countries in war or uh, two whole frameworks or ideas coming together in a debate or maybe something even closer to our hearts, football. It's OU Texas, right? Now, being a Sooner... I know the superior force is north of the Red River, okay? It's that 50-yard line, right, where the hideous orange, sea of orange, meets the beautiful wave of crimson, and they hate each other, right? All was right in the world just a few moments earlier, but for four quarters, right? It's just chaos. Everything's thrown to a frenzy, and then everybody goes home, and it's fine. OU has won. <clears throat> or maybe, you know, in that case when it's beautiful, you go back to your, you know, normal life, you come back home, they carry on with their life, and everything goes back to normal. Listen, the, the collision of worlds is, is the crux of the human experience. It's wired into every interaction that we have, every conflict that we run into, every romantic pursuit. It's every friendship, whether it's a close friendship or one that's troubled. It's every marriage. This uh, collision of worlds is uh, obvious in the experience of parenting or in business, in commerce, politics, in your career. It's in the fabric of the human experience because it's at the core of what it is to be fallen man made in the image of anything but fallen God. The story of scripture then is certainly no exception. It's a collision of two worlds. It, it happens historically. Take the Gospels, for example, which is where we're going to go today right? <clears throat> the Gospels don't happen in a vacuum, right? Historically, you have a, a Jewish world colliding with the Roman world in the first century. It's tradition meets innovation, right? It, it, it's, it's ritual and infrastructure. It's divine power and human power, and they're colliding and coming together, but it's not just historically. It's also cosmically, right? You have the kingdom of heaven colliding with the kingdom of this earth, 
And the story of the Gospel of Matthew, specifically, as we're going to see today, is the kingdom come. But not just the kingdom, it's the king has come. And here's the difference from the football game or the debate or whatever it is. The difference is everything is different. You don't go back to life as usual and the reality of the kingdom come on this earth. Now, I understand it's really strange to preach a Christmas sermon Labor Day weekend, okay? Some people, I'm in this camp, they gripe about Christmas music before Thanksgiving, okay? I don't like to start Christmas celebrations too early. I'm a Grinch. I get it. But I think... There is a profound and a deep. There is a beautiful and a chaotic reality to this often overlooked story. Because here is one of the places where we see that everything is different in our world and in our lives. And so if you'll open with me, Matthew chapter 2, in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 2. We're going to see how this infant King Jesus changes and shakes up the scope of the world as we know it. The world is certainly different. We're going to see two ways as this happens. We're going to see rage uh, give way to redemption, and we're going to see folly or foolishness give way to fulfillment. And my hope for us today is that we see that everything is different because now Jesus is here, and that that was the case in the first century here, but it's also the case in 2022 right here right now. Will you guys pray with me and then we'll get into the scriptures. Father God, be real to us today. Speak truth to our weakness. Speak truth to our pride. Lord, I pray that everything would become different because of what we hear from you and your scriptures today. Remove any barriers of attitude or distraction that would keep us from hearing what you would say and be glorified. Help me to get out the way that people might see you as glorious and beautiful this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, but if you'll allow me, I want to set up a little bit of the context. Matthew chapter 1 and 2 The gospel writer unpacks this infancy narrative of Jesus' life, and he starts with a genealogy, and uh, some of it might seem boring, but we really dug into it as we were going through this with students a couple weeks ago, Uh, um, and we saw that the genealogy was structured in such a way that it was broken down into 14s, and if you even split that in half, it was broken down into 7s, which is a really powerful view of something uh, fulfilled or completed in Jesus, right? That he is the fulfillment of everything leading up to this point. But we saw Matthew really prioritizing two people that didn't quite fit in. And so uh, we, we, uh, we had seen in RSM the, the uh, impact of Matthew including a Ruth or, or a Rahab or a wife of Uriah and Bathsheba of those who probably uh, didn't really fit into the religious norms or, or, or didn't really fit into this category of maybe Jewish heroes. They weren't even Jewish, right? 
And so we get this vision from the very start of, gos- of the gospel of Matthew of Jews being directly who he's talking to. And everybody ought to take notice because this is the fulfillment of everything God has been working towards in the whole first part of our Bibles. But we also get this powerful recognition that what's happening here isn't limited to a specific group of people. No, it's for the nations right? So Jew and non-Jew ought to take notice, and that's highlighted even more so whenever we meet these other characters, these wise men from the east at the start of chapter 2. You got these wise men from the east, these these astrologer types, these uncircumcised people who didn't fit into uh, the understanding of what God's people looked like, And, and you had them who recognized something in the sky of a star. I don't know how all this works, right? But it was some sort of bright light brings them to Jerusalem. And they show up in Jerusalem and they talk to Herod. Herod, this half-Jewish, half-Roman, Hellenistic Jew who, who viewed himself as king of the Jews in the line of David, but wouldn't have been. He was politically savvy. He knew how to navigate the Roman world, right? And these wise men from the east, they come into Herod and, and, and they're on a mission to find this king of the Jews to worship him. And Herod sends them on a submission. He says, he, he goes, uh, yeah, go find this baby so, and come back and report to me so that I might worship him also. And the wise men come and they, they find this baby. They find this baby Jesus, this one that would be the savior of the world. And they worship and bring valuable gifts and gold and frankincense and myrrh. And, and they bow at the feet of this baby. Notice it's no small thing that it was those beyond the Jews, the ones who would have been traditionally God's people who acknowledged the son of God first. Then they come and they worship, but then in verse 12, it says that they're warned in a dream. They're warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, and so they go another way. And then we get this picture of Joseph, and he's with Mary and baby Jesus, and he's told in a dream as well with sea whispers of Old Testament Joseph, who was also a dreamer. Joseph is told to uh, evacuate to Egypt, see Old Testament reference to the book of Exodus, right? Because Herod's intentions and going, getting the wise men to go and, and tell them where he is so that he might worship him, his intentions were maybe not so pure in the first place, right? So Joseph is told in a dream to escape to Egypt, And it's in that moment where Matthew steps in and he sees in the third of five Old Testament references in verse 15 there, he sees a correlation in that escape to Egypt as what was spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. And we see God's redemptive plan unfolding right? And everything that God's people were supposed to be in that escape from Egypt in the book of Exodus wrapped up in this little baby Jesus. And look, he's calling our attention. Everything's about to be different, okay? So that's the stage set, right? We have Herod, we have Wiseman, we have Joseph, we have Mary and baby. 
And here's where we have in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and they went to the land of Israel. But when they heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to see how Jesus changes everything. And let's look at one example of that as rage gives way to redemption. We can see this first in Herod's self-centered perspective. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. And it begs the question, like, all right, where did Herod really go wrong to get from zero to 100 so quickly? I think it's really obvious that Herod only had a perspective that was centered on Himself, that the only thing, the only possibility of what could have been going on is that the wise men had it out for him, that the wise men had tricked him. When in reality, what was happening underneath the surface, or rather above everything else, is that God was the one orchestrating his plan from the very start. Look at verse 12. It says, uh, God warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. And so they departed their different way. The reality is that God was orchestrating a plan. And Herod had absolutely no categories for a bigger plan being at play. How do I know this? I mean, look at his reaction. Look at Herod's reactionary fury. Right? It says he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that had, uh, he had ascertained from the wise men. Listen, all the boys two and under in all that region. We get a double all here to emphasize the horrors of this event. The evil of this event can't be understated. Now, I don't have a son. Well, I, I might. We have one on the way in February. We don't know if it's a son or a daughter, but I do have a daughter. She's under two. And the thought of some sort of decree like this is unthinkable. 
that somebody would sit and, and send out others to go and wipe out an entire population of children under two years old. This is the depths of human depravity. It's the depths of human cowardice. Listen, Herod likely killed no one. He sat back as he saw other people carry out his orders. The evil of this can't be understated, but the reality of this type of rage can't be understated either. The, the reality of how this root of rage might even rise up in us can't be understated either. Take, for example, how many of us would get to the point of saying all bets are off in our relationship with somebody and give in to rage in a moment when it felt like the entire world had it out for you, like Herod did. And we might not go this far, we may not, but, but when someone's wronged you, what depths of name-calling and malice and hostility and rage will we react with at the first sign of uh, perceived deception? But it may just be that God has a grander plan for redemption for perceived deceit. Yes, our God is at work in every single detail. And here's the real hard part for us. Do we believe that God's sovereignty still holds when we're wronged? Do we believe that God is still working in every single detail whenever Somebody slighted us. And then the further question is, do we believe that that is a reality enough such that we don't react out of rage in light of that? Do we believe that God's sovereignty still holds in those scenarios? Here's the good news. Listen, God's sovereignty does still hold. It certainly holds. And how do I know that? Because even in the rage that Herod reacted with, God's sovereignty still held. Verse 17, when then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. What was fulfilled by the prophet was what was seen in Jeremiah 31, 15. Matthew brings up this fourth of five Old Testament quotations in his infancy narrative. Jeremiah 31 is a messianic chapter. It's a messianic section of scripture, and, and I won't have you turn there now, but the entire good news of one coming to save people from their sin and a hope for something better in a world that is better is interrupted in verse 15 with this grasp on reality in Jeremiah 31. A voice is heard in Ramah, which would have been probably as far north from Jerusalem as Bethlehem was south, right? 
And it would have been on the same road, Bethlehem, Jerusalem, Ramah, all of these right in line. And Rachel weeping for her children would have been a sign of something uh, where Rachel would have been understood to have been buried in Bethlehem. Right? So this is where Matthew is drawing the correlation. But in this Babylonian exile, in the time when Jeremiah prophesied, it would have been this grasping reality as sons were sent and marched up to war to be killed, right? And bitter weeping from parents, tears running down their face. And it's a total downer in Jeremiah 31. Until Jeremiah prophesies and says, thus says the Lord in verse 16, following directly after this horrible scene of mothers crying over their children, verse 16 says, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Listen, this is is horrible evil, but Matthew is writing to draw our attention to the reality that the horrors of this time and of Herod wiping out thousands of children in what we get, one single verse... It's it's going to be no more. The terror of those moments is not forever. There is a hope for your future. Don't cry out weeping. Don't cry tears of sorrow. Redemption is here and his name is Jesus. Listen, a world of unthinkable evils is not new. It's as old as Genesis 3 in the garden. It's as old as Exodus, whenever Pharaoh carried out a very similar plan to wipe out all of these young boys. It's as uh, uh, old as Babylon as they marched Israel's sons to battle to go and die. It's as old, this world of unthinkable evil, as yesterday for some of you or a year ago, or five years ago, and you've been wrestling with the weight of this world for a long time, or maybe it's very fresh and new. That's nothing new. And that's no message of hope for me to simply say that that's nothing new. The message of hope comes in that the news that someone is here to do something about it, that's entirely new. That's what Matthew wants us to see. He's here. Jesus says, come. He's our Savior, Messiah, Mashiach in the Hebrew, Christ in the Greek. He is here, and he's compelling the worship of everyone. Wise men from the east, he's compelling the worship of Herod, that half-Jewish king who thinks he is in the line of David and the king of the Jews. He is sorely mistaken. No, he is to bow down to Jesus, the Christ, the true king of the Jews, and now the world, everything is different here. He's here, but it's not how everyone expected it to be. It's through folly and foolishness that God shames the wise of this world, 1 Corinthians tells us. It's through unexpected that God 
tends to show up with great power. Let's look what happens next. Verses 19 through 23. But Herod died, and behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead now. And he rose, and he took his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Listen, it, it, we read that passage and we go, it actually seems to make no sense that God would call them out of Egypt to go to Israel just to be in danger again and go from Israel to Nazareth. It doesn't seem to make sense. But I think Matthew is doing one thing that he loves to do in this gospel story, which is to highlight the divine protection that comes from faithful obedience, as Joseph did here. Not enough can be said of Joseph's urgent obedience to God. His return to Israel highlights and echoes what happened in the Exodus story, again demonstrating that all God's people were intended to be was fulfilled in this baby. But it's a focus of Matthew's here to say, look at what comes of faithful obedience. Any hesitancy from Joseph, any pushback on the commands of God in this moment would have had horrific consequences for the savior of the world. But instead, immediate obedience, it gives way to divine protection. The same holds for us. Matthew's really, really concerned with this. We see it in Matthew 28. Jesus, in his parting words, resurrected Jesus, speaking his, to his disciples, says, uh, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And now go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey what I have commanded. Matthew's really concerned with obedience here. And it seems silly to go from Egypt to Israel and Israel to Galilee. But it's that obedience that seems silly. It's folly. It's foolish where God unfolds this story of wisdom for us and the Savior of the world. And then they land in the most unlikely of homes. What seems silly, what seems foolish, in verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. <coughs> that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, this is a, a strange reference for Matthew to use here of, of saying what would be fulfilled by the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene but you can do this research and I know you can look into it um, because I had our middle and high school boys do it on a Tuesday morning at 630 in the morning and if they can do that then any of you guys can do anything. We did a quick search on our little Bible apps. Nazarene. Nothing pops up in the Old Testament. What's going on here? What is Matthew talking about? Well, there's three options, I think. The Greek word Nazarene shares a root with the Hebrew word for root or shoot or one coming off like a branch. 
It shows up in the prophets as a very messianic term that I think is no accident by Matthew. It's referring to someone in the Davidic line. It's, it's referred to in Isaiah in chapter 4 and in chapter 11 and in, in Jeremiah in chapter 23 and chapter 53. That would be option one, okay? It's a very messianic word here. Could be option number two to refer to a Nazarite, which um, Samson's mother took a vow of, this Nazarite vow to consecrate Samson in Judges 13.7, to set him apart as one spirit-empowered, although seems kind of interesting to consider Jesus a Nazarite because he didn't really walk and live in all of the same ways that somebody who would have taken a Nazarite vow would have or it could be option number three, a reference to the derogatory slang of the term Nazarene. It's what Nathaniel used when he talked to Philip in John chapter one. And Philip came to Nathaniel and he goes, we found the one that the scriptures have been talking about for years and years. The Messiah is here and he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel looks at Philip and he goes, Anything good come from Nazareth? And maybe it's because I'm from a place that feels like that sometimes. But I love that characteristic of where Jesus grew up. It's the picture of Isaiah 53, of the suffering servant who comes to, to take on the weight and the burden of the sins of the world with no beauty or majesty that we would bow down and worship him, but he's from Nazareth. Now, I think Matthew's use of the word prophets here in the plural, instead of simply singling out one prophet, is a hint and a tip that he's referring to maybe in some ways a conflation of these three things. The point here that Matthew wants us to see is that there's two worlds that absolutely collide here. It's what seems really foolish in the world God is going to use for the greatest good of all of the promises that he has laid out in his word and in his world to this point. It's wisdom and power and eternity coming to life as Jesus grows up in little old Nazareth, learning to walk and talk and babble and preach the good news of the kingdom here on earth. The unlikeliest of cities. This baby. That's how God chooses to save the world and shift the course of all of history. And so the question remains, why the heck preach this sermon on Labor Day? The main reason is that this is the passage that we would have talked about with middle and high school students this Sunday. And I was going to skip it because who wouldn't want to skip a passage where a bunch of young children die, but as I saw it, as I looked in and I asked another question, I saw it fit well for us and the truth of God to speak to our church in this particular moment. The question that I asked was, why on earth would Matthew start his gospel this way? Why would Matthew 
writing to a Jewish audience, right, really comfortable in their religious life, why would he start his gospel with such tragedy and such foolishness? And I think, as I leaned into that, that there's a good chance that God may just want to speak to us who are really comfortable in our Christian norms, that we might hear the dangers of feeling threatened by the worship that Jesus demands of us. Might it be that that those of us who have figured out how to navigate these Christian spaces really well, might it be that he wants to warn us of feeling a little queasy as Jesus demands more and more of our attention, worship, adoration, because he demands it by his very presence on this earth. I get a sense sometimes that there are things that we tend to worship and devote our lives to and our time to and our money to that are nowhere near the worthiness of the glory of Jesus. And I'm no exception to this. I've experienced it too. But we have to see the worthiness of Jesus Christ. We have to see it the way that these wise men from the East saw it. Those who everybody would have least expected to recognize it first. And we might think we would be the one to recognize it first, but that might not be the case. It might just be that those who haven't figured out how to navigate these Christian spaces can acknowledge first the beauty and the glory of Christ. And there are things that we tend to devote a lot of energy to that are nowhere near the worthiness of Jesus Christ. Don't get it twisted. Jesus did not come into existence in the womb of Mary. No, he was there from time and eternity past. John 1 puts it this way. In the beginning was the Word. Not in the beginning the Word showed up. No, in the beginning was the Word. He was there in the beginning. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Earlier in Matthew, he's to be called Emmanuel, God with us. He lives on this earth and experiences this human life, the collision of all of these different worlds and human interactions and frustrations that we experience. In Hebrews 4, it says he sympathizes with our weaknesses in every respect, tempted as we are, yet without sin. He is God. Philippians 2 is where it says this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's on that cross that we can see all of our sin and all of our shame and all of our guilt nailed through his hands. And it's at the resurrection where if we continue on in Philippians 2, we see that therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of this little baby Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. God the Father. And it's the hope that He's coming back one day. And in that moment, in every tribe, tongue, language, nation will sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty around the throne for all of eternity. Listen, you may be sitting here thinking this morning, all this isn't for me. I don't fit the Christian mold. Look, see the wise men. They didn't fit the religious mold. But they acknowledged King Jesus. They were the first to bow. While the religious mold reacted with hostility, they reacted with humility. Maybe you're here and you've been playing this Christian game. Yet you're holding on to something as tight as Herod held on to his power. You're threatened by how much Jesus would demand of you to let that go. I believe that that's the Spirit this morning calling you to surrender everything at the feet of Jesus. Come and see the risen Messiah, the Jesus who has taken all fear, all shame, all guilt, and he's nailed it through his hands on the cross, and he's alive now that you might be alive and walk in newness of life. This is the good news of the gospel. And maybe you're here and you relate more than either of those with Rachel. As her voice is crying out from Bethlehem. And you've experienced a ton of loss in the last year, the last two, the last five. Maybe your life, as you look back, has been a constant series of one loss after another, of mourning and weeping. And here's the good news. Weep no more, cry out no more, wipe the tears from your eyes. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah is here. And maybe you need to hear this morning the words of that song as the Father reflects and looks at the cross and sees his own son killed. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one 
bring many sons to glory. Listen, don't leave today without acknowledging that Jesus changed everything. Jesus changed how we view the world and our place in it. Don't leave today without acknowledging that he takes rage and drives it towards redemption, that he takes silly things and drives it towards the fulfillment of every good promise that he has laid out for us. Everything is different. Let the kingdom of heaven then collide with the kingdom of your own heart this morning. That's my hope. That's my prayer for you. You guys pray with me. Father, we're in such desperate need to acknowledge that you have changed everything. That so much of how we view our world and our place in it is self-centered. Yet, you have come. You were born and shifted the categories in that first century of how everybody on this planet thought about reality. And we so often come and sit and act as if we're floating through this life. Lord, I pray that that would be the case no more. Might it be a song? Might it be communion? When you wake us up to the reality that everything is different now that you have come. Lord, and even in those moments, whenever we can't fully acknowledge that, Lord, would you call us into faithful steps of obedience? It's in those little moments of lifting our voices and, and praising and worshiping you like the wise men did at the, th at the manger that draw us to an acknowledgement that you change everything. Lord, be with us now as we raise our voices in humble adoration as wise men did and as Herod should have done. In Jesus' name, amen.